Hey, everyone, and welcome to Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. I'm Amanda Clute, editor-in-chief of Eater. And I'm Daniel Janine. I am a producer here. Amanda, I feel like, you know, we've been we've been absent for a little bit from from just doing a straight news show. Yeah. You know, we've just uh, we've just done some interviews. I'm not saying we've flaked. I'm just saying it feels like it's been a second since we've talked delivery, since we've talked masks, Mm -hmm, indoor, mm -hmm, outdoor, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. aerosols, whatever. Well, and I was on vacation for a week, so so you blaming even, me? We so didn't you're even me. I'm just saying we didn't even run a show last week, so we got nope. a lot to catch up on. You know who makes me feel great are the people who DM me on Instagram, being like, "I'm not mad at you, but I just want you to know that I build my Friday around the digest." Oh, the real fans! I've That's started. So nice. Do you just like offer to g- give them a call? I do. I just have a one-on-one sesh. I zoom them, and we just so they can hear you. We run through the news. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's for our Patreon members. Just <laughs> we will do that if you pay us a fee. Um, yep. Yeah, so to, we're not on Patreon but today yes. on the show. We are going to talk about the biggest stories of the week in food and restaurants. Oh, first, we are talking to Ollie Fowler, the editor of Eater Miami, and Farley Elliott, the senior editor of Eater Los Angeles. Both cities have fallen victim to this kind of uh, government oversight, telling them to shut down, then telling them to reopen, telling them to shut down again. It's been impossible for these restaurants to run their business, Amanda. Yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, it's connected to the surges in cases. So especially in California, where it felt maybe a little bit under control, they reopened and it was not under control at all. But it remind reading about all these openings and closings and and all that reminded me of our episode with Tom Calicchio back in March. I don't know if you remember. He was talking about the worst possible thing that could happen is if restaurants reopen too early and then there's another surge and they have to close again and then like blah blah blah. We'd be much better off everyone to staying closed yeah. for as safe as we can for until like September. And then reopen all at once because it's just so detrimental to these businesses. And also, of course, it's not safe if people are getting sick because they're dining inside or they're at bars. Like there was a case in Michigan where one college bar was a a flashpoint for almost 200 cases because there were people on the dance floor and it was it was a college bar. So it's like this is like the worst possible scenario that we are in right now that we had talked about back in March. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think one thing that maybe was obvious to listeners and you, but not to me, was that, uh, or maybe it wasn't the common idea at that time, was that this isn't gonna be a, this isn't a centralized surge. It's like cities that we had thought were doing really well and would be permitted to slowly reopen are now getting nailed. Cities that were a disaster, like New York, seem to actually now be on a better track, but it's just gonna be, pop-ups it's like it's almost like a whack-a-mole you know right but new york it was scheduled indoor dining was supposed to come back this week and they had to scuttle it because they've seen all these these other around the country around the country yeah and so now we've seen opening and then closing not just in la but 18 other california counties uh all over texas arizona idaho uh michigan i think they just reclosed bars it's like (laughs) <laughs> sure is. Okay, so here are uh, Ollie and Farley to talk about their cities. Uh, Ollie, let's start with you. Tell us, what is it like in Miami right now in terms of the reopening and the closing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <where's it> <laughs> Miami right now is a study in 
how not to reopen and reclose things, I would sit and argue. Um, the Miami-Dade County mayor basically on Monday afternoon, Monday, like late morning, about 11, announced via Twitter that all the restaurants were going to close come Wednesday, uh, both indoor and outdoor dining. Uh, he got a lot of backlash very quickly for that. He also, he also said uh, ballrooms, uh, Airbnbs, gyms, those were all going to be closing as well. He got a lot of backlash by Monday evening around 10 p.m. He tweeted another thing saying, hey, actually outdoor dining is okay. But um, yeah, but uh, you can only have maximum of four people at a table and uh, four people at a table, you have to wear a mask the whole time unless you're eating or drinking. And um, there's no loud music at any restaurants, which I'm, I'm here for that one. Um, and then he switched the dates. It was supposed to start yesterday. It actually started today. So, um, yeah. So quick, could you actually give us um, Miami's trajectory with with the whole opening and closing and also maybe f how it differed from Florida as a yeah, whole? Yeah, so state of Florida, um, South Florida, Miami, Broward, and Palm Beach counties uh, were a lot more, I guess, conservative uh, with their original closings and openings. Um, Miami, basically all the restaurants essentially closed by mid-March. Uh, the rest of the state, it was about uh, the end of March, early April. Then uh, the rest of the state, aside from South Florida, they, <laughs> they reopened starting May 4th. Uh, South Florida didn't start until May 18th. I, had, I have all of my notes, but um, a lot of the cities actually chose within Miami. There's 37 cities within Miami-Dade County and a lot of the major cities, including City of Miami, City of Miami Beach, where there's a lot of restaurants, chose to wait till May 27th. So after, after Memorial Day, essentially. Um, and yeah, <laughs> and that's, and then restaurants are starting to reopen. We could reopen at 50% capacity inside, 100% uh, capacity outside but everyone had to be six feet apart, um, no more than six people at a table. And for until recently, you could, as long as you were sitting, you could, you didn't have to wear a mask. So that's, that's hmm. where we were. I was just say for those who don't know, what are the cases doing in Florida right now? Oh yeah, no, we're, we're spiking. Um, I was just trying to pull out the new numbers before we jumped on, but Basically, we had close to 3,000 in Miami yesterday and almost 9,000, I believe, was the headline I saw just before I jumped on for today alone in the state of Florida. Um, so it's, it's not looking good right now. And there's something we're right now at a 14-day average of 22% infection rate. So for wow. World Health Organization says to be safe with reopening, you have to be under 5%. Oh, my God. Yeah. And Farley, what's going on in... Uh... Los Angeles. Well, first of all, I want to take issue with what Oli said. You know, I really firmly believe that Los Angeles is the one that's leading the bungling of the reopenings. Um, <laughs> Stiff competition. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're honestly on a pretty similar trajectory. Um, obviously, Los Angeles is the uh, most populous county in America with 10 million people. And so we operate a little bit differently than even surrounding counties. They, uh, Orange County, Ventura, places like that, little, you know, smaller more suburban had opened up early on in May. Um, by the end of May, May 28th, May 29th was when we started hearing and were the first to report that uh, we were going to reopen LA County. And that 
was just a total nightmare. What happened was they went on, on a county call and all of the public health officials said, you guys can reopen tonight as long as you self-certify that you have followed all these guidelines. The only problem is no one had the guidelines. They didn't put them online until about 8 p.m. that night. Mm. Um, that led into the weekend of um, civil unrest and, and George Floyd related, you know, anti-police brutality protests. And we had curfews immediately after that. And those curfews didn't start rolling out until say like 2 PM the day of telling people that they had to close their restaurants by four o'clock. Um, and so it's just been mismanaged at pretty much every level. Bars opened at the end of last month, made it about a week before they were mandated to be closed again. And then just on uh, last week, we found out that they were going to close indoor dining after only allowing, say, 60% capacity for the better part of a month or five weeks. So um, hmm. there's been no advance warning for any of it. There's been no heads up for uh, business professionals, for the media, for anybody. And the governor, Newsom, and everybody at the local city and county levels, including Mayor Garcetti, have just been getting lambasted for the lack of information. Can you guys talk about how, why it's so damaging for restaurants and bars to have to seesaw between opening and closing and opening and, and not getting advanced warning, why it's such a big cost to them? Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of different ways to think about it. When we talked to operators during the curfews, like say you're a barbecue restaurant, it takes 12 hours to smoke meat and 75% of your business is at night. You go through the process of cooking off thousands of dollars worth of product, bringing in staff that maybe come by public transit, live somewhere far away. Those people are now told within two hours that they have to get home or face a fine or jail time. And all of the product that you cooked in anticipation of selling that night, even through delivery apps is no longer viable. And that's just for curfews. When you add the lack of a heads up for reopening or closing, you know, the amount of shortages for PPE, for a plexiglass to put between tables, to follow all the rules and, and lean mm -hmm. into small details, like whether or not you can have a sommelier pour wine from a wine bottle, all of that stuff takes time and it takes money and effort. And when you don't give people a heads up, they're literally just burning cash that they already don't have. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and to piggyback off that, like there was a 182 page document uh, outlining all the different rules and regulations of uh, companies needed, including restaurants to reopen, like all the hand sanitizer, all the PPP, like all that stuff, like just out the window. Um, and also I was talking to one restaurant owner today and he's like, I, you know, we had $30,000, $40,000 in produce and, you know, different supplies for the restaurant that we're basically going to have to toss now, you know, and because the order came within 48 hours. So, and then it's hiring and rehiring staff. Like he was like, I just had to lay off a bunch of people and then, oh, bring them back on the next day because now we can have outdoor dining. So it's like, it's, it's a nightmare. Can you guys talk about the employee point of view as well? Like if I'm a server... I probably got laid off, went on unemployment. If I was lucky, it happened quickly and I'm getting this this money and then my restaurant calls me back and then I do I have to go back on the list. And what's it like for these guys? I think that's a really important point to kind of stress. You're talking about a level of uncertainty for individuals that uh, we haven't seen in, in truly generations. I mean, 80% of the hospitality workforce in Los Angeles County was unemployed as of last month. And so there is a real need, especially once the additional $600 a week unemployment stipend runs out at the end of the month to um, either get back to work or figure out how you are going to continue to survive in a city that is not cheap. Um, 
and it, without taking generational wealth from family members, if you're lucky enough to be able to have something like that, you're staring down a lot of really tough conversations, moving back home, leaving friends and family behind, um, potentially seeing a huge spike in homeless rates, which is already a really big issue for Los Angeles County. So um, I don't blame anybody for feeling like they need or want to go to work to try to make a living. But I just don't know, as Ryan Sutton has said, uh, out of Eater New York, how you can, as a diner, feel super comfortable Sitting, sitting across the table from these people and knowing how much they're risking just to bring you a margarita. It feels like a lose-lose proposition that is going to require government intervention. And I simply don't know if that's coming. Yeah. And I mean, I've, talked, I've, I've spoken to a lot of uh, restaurant workers that say the same thing. And I've spoken to a lot, actually yesterday when everything started really going down here, a lot of people, you know, messaged me and they, everyone wanted to be off the record, but a lot of restaurant workers are like, we agree with the closing of the inside. We did not feel safe. Like we did not feel safe working in those kitchens. We did not feel safe serving people right now. It's just getting too bad out there. And have you talked to any restaurant owners who wish they had just stayed closed throughout this whole thing or any, any people who stayed closed and are just relieved they didn't have to do the seesaw? Oh, definitely. I mean, we had a story yesterday from here's looking at you, you know, the Eater America's 38 restaurant, really beautiful, wonderful example of what Los Angeles dining is and, and um, what should continue to be hopefully once we're through all this. They're closing down with no plans to reopen because they've simply run out of money. They tried to pivot, as the term is, to take out and delivery, but it's hard to make the kind of money that you need to keep your staff uh, employed, let alone safe while you're serving, you know, frog legs and other like fun shareable items. They said there were nights when they did two deliveries and there's just no way that you can continue to operate a business at that level. And so they wonder why they even tried to open in the first place. But the reality is you're also burning through cash with insurance, with rent, even with abatement and that sort of stuff. So there's just no good answers. Yeah. I mean, it, it's tough. I think the, the closure order down here surprised a lot of restaurant owners because it was so quick and so sudden. Um, honestly, as someone who is following this very closely, it didn't come as much of a surprise to me just seeing these numbers and seeing, um, I think, unfortunately, it is it is the, the end of a lot of restaurants just because we're year round here in Miami, but like summertime's brutal. Like we were ha literally having the worst summer in like a hundred years, the hottest summer in hundred years down here right now. And it's, it's 95 degrees at midnight, you know, like it's just, it's wild. So the restaurants, people don't want to be sitting outside and sweating, you know, they rather just sit and it's kind of dangerous to be out and about right now with a 22% infection rate. Like people are just wanting to stay home. So I think this latest closure is going to be sadly like the nail in the coffin for a lot and of And is it any different for bars? Do you think, do you see any possible future for a lot of your favorite bars? Um, I mean, bars, so bars in Florida reopened, but they never opened, reopened in South Florida. So they've actually been closed since March down here. Um, I, I really don't know because Miami, like, like we're known for like our nightclub culture. We're known, like, I don't know how you're going to have a nightclub that usually packs in thousands of people all of a sudden, you know, have a, a few hundred people in it, this mega nightclub and that's four story, you know, like, I just don't see how that's going to survive. Um, some of the bars were getting creative with like to go cocktails and stuff. I don't think much of that took off. I'm curious. I, I really, I don't know what the future of the bar industry is. And they, I mean, they were all hoping they'd be open up in a few weeks. And now I, I'd be shocked if bars open till, 
you know, fall, winter at the, at the earliest down here. And that's if everything calms down, which at this rate, it's not. So yeah, we've been kind of trying to sound the alarm. I think it's a bit of an underreported story locally about the real danger that bars and, and the whole nightlife industry is in. You talk about restaurants reopening at 60% capacity with, you know, outdoor dining and distance tables. It always said, you know, that's not possible with a club. And even if you're not a, a person who goes and experiences clubs, that is still tens of thousands of jobs, millions of dollars in the economy. And it's not just these big, well-funded places. It's your local dive bar. It's that third space that people can go and, and meet and see each other. And now we're talking about, you know, our own positivity rates, north of 10% of Los Angeles County, 15% in Orange County. These places may not reopen until 2021 if they reopen at all. I mean, in Massachusetts, they're not allowing reopening until there's a vaccine or some sort of treatment. And so I think that kind of, for me, made it even more real of like so many of these bars are just never going to make it. And so, you know, in five years, yes, we'll have bars again, but for the people who run the bars that I love, mm-hmm. how are they going to get through unless they own the building or have some sort of way out of this or big outdoor space? Yeah. I mean, some bars were kind of working around, like trying to serve food too, because the rule was if you serve, you know, more food than drink 51%, 49, then they could get away with it. But even then the cops are kind of starting to crack down on that because people were just going and sitting and drinking outside basically. So I, I just, I, I really don't know. I really don't know how our culture is going to survive. I will just say too, like personally at home, my drinking is through the roof. So it's gotta be so hard for these operators to just like see a world that has come to their line of work, <laughs> but there's no ability to make money. Everyone's drinking more than ever just in their own homes. <laughs> Exactly. Actually, I had one more Miami question. Um, I saw an interesting report that uh, 50 Miami restaurants sent a letter to the mayor uh, because he had cited some research saying that interior of restaurants um, or that the majority of cases were coming from the interior of restaurants or something like that. And they asked, they asked to see. Yeah, they they sent a letter. I, yeah, I, I wrote about it today. Um, they sent a letter basically wanting to see these numbers and basically not wanting to shut down until they see these numbers. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's a big, and, and basically he was like, no, we're still shutting you down. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, I, I know there's been studies. I know, you know, that it's, it's, we all know circulated air sitting in tight spaces is not, you know, great for it. I don't know if he has an actual figure or if he was just, you know, saying that, but I have not seen a study if, uh, if he does have one. Last quick question. What's, what's going on mask related in the cities? Uh, what we've been seeing a lot is like, um, you know, we, we got pretty good people wearing masks, even just out for walks and stuff. But on the restaurant side, it's, pretty crazy. I mean, you don't have to go far out of Los Angeles before you get into more conservative country. And there have been multiple restaurants that have closed for limited amounts of time because they've been getting so much pushback from employees, people throwing water on them and all sorts of crazy stuff. I mean, it's been so Mm -hmm. politicized despite being a pandemic that it's really making it even harder to operate. When When you say conservative, you mean taking a slower, more informed approach and not making rash decisions? Uh, that's not traditionally how I would define the conservative <laughs> movement, but sure. <laughs> okay. 
Um, Miami-Dade County just, well, like various cities within the county made face masks a requirement quite some time ago. Um, Miami-Dade County just made them like, if I step out of my house, I'm supposed to be wearing a mask. It used to only be if you couldn't socially distance or if you were outside. Uh, and like I said earlier, um, when you were dining right. out, you used to be able, once you sat down to take the mask off, but now you have to keep it on unless you're, um, you know, eating or drinking. How do you even monitor that? That was just enforced. Like I, I want to say July 4th. Like what that. if you're wearing a camelback and you're just slowly taking sips the whole. I know. Like, <laughs> or you just sit with like the wine in your hand. Like, you know, I don't, I don't know how they can enforce that. I, <laughs> I've been hearing from different friends that people were getting on Yelp saying, Oh, you know, there was a bossy waitress trying to tell me to put my mask on. And so. Oh God. They're going to Yelp. Yep. Um, cool. So <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I haven't dined out since that happened. I don't really want to dine out right now. So, um, and the idea of wearing a mask in this heat sitting outside for a two hour meal, like, like, yeah, like not good, miserable. So I just, I, I don't see that going very well. The closest I've come to dining out is there's a woman who has a pop-up where she makes breakfast sandwiches out of her fourth floor apartment and she drops them to you from a bucket down the street level and you take it and leave. That's, mm. a, that's as far as I've got. <laughs> that sounds exciting at least. Yeah, that is something. A little day out, a She's, little John. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for all your reporting and all your work and stay safe out there. Thank you. Thank you. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. All right, Amanda, we're back. Uh, we mentioned masks briefly with uh, Farley and Ollie, but I had an, an interesting experience last night, which was like my first, the first time I had come face to face, no pun intended, with the mask uh, conversation in the restaurants. I was just picking up beans from a coffee shop that also operates as a wine bar at nighttime. And this woman was helping me pick beans. This couple came in hoping to grab a glass of wine in the back patio, fully legal, fully within their rights. The woman who was helping me said, oh, do you guys just have a mask um, just to walk through the restaurant? You don't have to wear it outside, but you'd have to wear it coming into our space. And they were like, oh, sorry, it's in the car. Do you mind if we'll just run quick? And I could just see the look on this woman's face. this This was a nice couple. They weren't causing any harm, but they were just trying to get her to be a little bit flexible. And what I realized was that even in this very, 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 uh, sparks weren't flying. There was no anger. It's like it forced this woman to 
or it forced this woman into like an ideological position and it forced her to be like a, a disciplinarian almost. And I can't. Um, well, and uh, like a, a health and safety yeah. person. Right. Versus right. a hospitality person. Like she has to enforce health and safety regulations. I can't imagine in in cities where their mask usage is more politicized because Toronto, it, it's not really. It's very much like everyone accepts like, oh, I don't feel like wearing a mask, but I understand that's the best thing to do. Uh, I can't imagine what what these what these workers, what these uh, hospitality people are, are having to deal with on a day-to-day basis. It must be so taxing. Yeah, we've been seeing this across the country in all of our coverage that restaurant employees have to become the enforcers of mask wearing and they get into these altercations with customers who are super aggressive and don't want to do it. And like Farley said, I think it was Farley saying that they spill water on them or worse. Uh, yeah. There was a story out of Atlanta where this restaurant owner she didn't want to require masks at the restaurant because she was worried that it would put her employees in the position of having to be the enforcer. And she thought like, if we just make sure everyone has reservations and we follow all these other safety guidelines, like people get the message and we can just put up signs, but no one paid attention and no one was being respectful. So she had to change the rules and enforce mask wearing. And it's just, it's just a very uncomfortable place for these workers to be in. Yeah, I was trying to think of a parallel because there's something very personal. It feels more personal than, you know, if someone's not tall enough to get on a roller coaster, that's it's more like a science based thing. But for some reason, this feels more invasive. I was thinking like this is such a silly example, but imagine if imagine if the the waiter waitstaff was charged with making sure that people used cutlery or silverware in the restaurant. You know, it's like something that's very intimate to someone's eating experience and hanging out experience. And they were they had to be monitoring it the whole time. Not to mention the fact that the mask slips on and off constantly when you're eating. So it's not like it Mm -hmm. would be much easier to just be like, you have to wear a mask when you're in the restaurant. But that's not even the case. Right. Anyway, so I think, uh, you know, we've started to see some of these flare ups and it's becoming like a thing that you see constantly on the Internet of patron uh, employee fights, patron versus patron, patrons step in to defend the restaurant. And uh, I can't I can't imagine as this thing becomes more politicized and mask usage becomes more heavily enforced by the larger government bodies. I can't imagine this is something that's going to go away. No, no. I mean, masks aren't going away anytime soon. So. And neither. I don't, is yeah, anger. I mean, maybe. It will get to a point like one of the reasons I think New Yorkers are so comfortable wearing masks right now is not just that it's a liberal leaning city. It's that it was the epicenter and this outbreak has affected every person here to a certain degree. Right. And so as these flare ups keep happening, unfortunately, I think these people who are so anti-mask might come around. Yeah. Because this will impact their own lives. And they'll become those people that you see online with like the mask that says fuck masks. Yeah. Or the Confederate flag masks. (laughs) Anyway, what a world. Uh, All right, Amanda, in, 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 uh, in lighter news, or I guess according to some people, it's, it's not lighter news. Um, Alinea, a restaurant, you know, the ultra fancy famous restaurant owned by Grant Ackett's and Nick Kokonis, who we've previously had on the podcast to talk about their booming business, opened 
an outdoor version of Alinea called uh, Alinea in Residence, A-I-R, where supposedly they've served already 2,000 people or something. They've done like 2,000 dinners. Wow. In, uh, in, in Block Club Chicago, uh, they wrote a piece called Alinea made a coronavirus-themed dish. It's not going over well. Yeah. It's a... Yeah. Uh, Yep. It, it's an early course in their in their long tasting menu. A, a and canapé. It's a canapé, oh, even earlier than mm-hmm. I was subscribing. Um, and, it, it, you know, it's a gray dot with some frozen red raspberries, uh, you know, around the side meant to look like the like the covid cell. At first, as I am one to do, I saw that the Internet was upset about it. So I was like, I'm assuming that it wasn't meant to look like the covid cell Uh, really well i just did you see the picture though i kind of saw the picture it was kind of from far away and then i looked and it like obviously it it is meant to look like the like the virus and uh, i thought you were gonna say like since i always want to be the counter take i thought it looked like coronavirus but was cute yeah but the original counter take would be like it wasn't meant because it looks like a it looks like an avant-garde dish. Like if we weren't living in this pandemic, sure, yes. you would see that yeah. and be like, oh, that's a strange looking Alinea dish. Uh, mm-hmm, what else mm-hmm. is on my feed? Um, right. But yeah, it definitely is uh, the, the COVID cell. I mean, according to Nick, I'm paraphrasing, but th- this is a part of the menu that's meant to remind you at the beginning that uh, things are not okay. And it's like, it's like, yeah, you're being transported off into this magical world of Alinea's, you know, whatever, uh, Alinea's utopia. But hey, this is what's really going on in the world. Um, But a lot of people, a a huge number of people, and I don't know if it's just because like I'm seeing it online or whatever, but are very upset and say it's very, it, it, it lacks sensitivity and it and it is very it's upsetting to people who have been who have had family members, friends, businesses destroyed by by covid. Right. Because their point of view is it, it seems like you're trying to be cute here. This is not cute. This yeah. is very serious. Yeah. And his point is uh, art <laughs> is supposed to make you uncomfortable. Art is often meant to provoke discomfort, conversation and awareness. This is no different. Everyone on here saying we are somehow oblivious need to think just a single level upwards. So <laughs> so Nick is thinking, you know, at a, at a higher level. Yeah, Nick is playing che- chess when all of us are playing checkers, yeah. being like, oh, a COVID dish? That's not what I want at my Alinea in resident ex- <laughs> experience. But look, I mean, I don't know. Obvious, and also yeah. just like not appetizing to me. Uh, there have been other, this isn't the first instance. There's a guy who made a burger that's meant to look like COVID. To, because like the way we battle this thing is by not being afraid of it. I mean, artistically right. speaking, those <laughs> they're coming from from different places. Uh, you know, that's not the same artistic message. Look, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, I don't. Getting mad at the Alinea team for this is absurd. I think you can call it bad art, and you can say like, I think you could make the point. That um, I, it, right now, I don't think we need our our elevated tasting menus to remind us of the devastation in the world. But you know what? I actually don't. From that standpoint, I don't hate this because there are a lot of people I would assume who are going to these things looking to escape entirely from what's going right. on in the world. And like, 
Talk about a target market of people who aren't feeling the effects of this thing as much as, uh, you know, most other people. And it's people. And what and what will this do? Well, I'm not. Look, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like think about other. It'll remind them of the what they're doing. Like, What if it was like the 9-11 towers (laughs) or like the Sandy Hook shooting? (laughs) Like when is it when is it fine to make art out of tragedy on your tasting menu? Yeah. And like. Jesus. I don't know. It's just I'm not I'm not saying it's that, but it is it is I I find it a little a little off. But I, I respect his so, opinion on it okay. that he's trying to that this is art and he's trying to make people uncomfortable and remember this. Like I, I see it. I just I don't know of it. I, I would the, say all right, look, I wanna I wanna the I wanna grandiose defense by obviously. saying like we were thinking at the higher level. I don't know if that's making anything better. It's hard not to laugh at a little bit. Um, but I want to create I wanna I wanna delineate a little bit between or, or, or call it a split between Sandy Hook, 9-11, and something like, uh, and something like COVID, which there's no, you know, the virus has no malicious intent. It, it's not out there. It's not out there set on murdering people, right? It's sure. like, it's a natural phenomenon that is tragic, but it it's like, it has, it is not an evil being. Um, I, I, you could totally live in a world where uh, a chef made a global warming theme dish, and I think that that wouldn't set off people in the same way. And I think, I think honestly, could be artistically relevant in a tasting menu setting. You know, All right, like great. I look, can't wait. A, I can't be- wait to try that. Look, a beautiful canapé, and then just as you're about to eat it, there's a huge flood or something, mm-hmm. and then you don't get to eat it or something. I mean, I don't know. I will say that the people who called it pro-Trump are <laughs> a little off the mark. Right. Like, yeah. why does it always have to go there? Like, well, they think he's making a joke out of coronavirus, even though he wasn't, and therefore he's pro-Trump. No, I mean, I the, the craziest part about this is you can call it bad art. You can say it's silly. I mean, it's it's. I want to say that it's so easy to make fun of something like a tasting menu in this setting, mm-hmm. right? Like it's such an easy target. So I think all I think, you know, we should check our impulses a little bit. Um, <clears throat> but it's coming from the least pro-Trump place, which is, hey, even though you're in this setting, like, don't forget. I mean, that that what we're going through, it, it's actually a counter Trump narrative. Well, if they knew that was his intention, on first glance, you might just think like they're making fun of it. it yeah. I mean, also in fairness to Nick or not in fairness to Nick, this it's not like he was like, hey, let's do a COVID cell. Uh, that's the team. It's his chefs and the team. And, and sure. supposedly he had nothing to do with it. And so well, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. No, no, no. But it's just hilarious that he is always the guy who gets into it with people online when they're bashing yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> well, when you have to defend something, it's like, who do you send to the front lines? That guy. Big news this week, Daniel. Uber Eats finally acquired Someone. another delivery service. They've yeah. been trying for a while. They were trying with Grubhub, uh, I think last month, two months ago. Uh, now they have acquired Postmates for $2.5 billion in stock. Um, so good for them. Good for them. They did it. Yeah. Well, we should mention that Grubhub was actually purchased in the end by Just Eat Takeaway for $7.3 billion, which is a a, a 
a European-based uh, delivery site. Yeah, given the way these businesses work, we've talked about this a lot before, consolidation is kind of inevitable. Yeah. You know, they need bigger market shares for them to be able to come close to profitability. Yeah, I mean, they would say that the larger these giant corporations would now say that now they have greater market share, they're actually able to compete and offer their their people in their restaurants a more money or whatever, more a better slice of the pie. But really what's happening is these titans are now just grabbing hold of this gig economy and mm -hmm. they're just getting more and more powerful and they're going to be able to squeeze squeeze their workers, whatever gig, uh, their empl not employees, but their people because they're just going to have n nowhere to turn. I mean, it's the same thing with the, with the restaurants. Like mm -hmm. if you only have two titans to deal with, I mean, I'm seeing it in Toronto a lot, like a lot of, uh, there's a site here called Ritual, which was meant for, uh, as an office solution for people to, to split lunches and they could all pay together and then go pick it up. It's kind of become huge right now because all they do is just offer an online menu and then you go, you go pick it up. But it's like, it was nothing before. And now it's huge because people are trying to get away from these crazy fees from DoorDash, Uber, Grubhub. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> But if there is just mega consolidation and there's no other way to get food from restaurant to customer, they're really in the hands of these of these titans. And then, and Uber now has gotten into uh, has gotten into grocery. I mean, the mm -hmm. thing is that we see like uh, the common language on this is always that we're five or six years behind China and, and South Korea in terms of the options of delivery. And and there you can be sitting in one place. And you can use one of these apps to get someone to bring something from a convenience store or whatever to you or beer into the restaurant. Just the fluency in which people are using delivery is a lot smoother. Um, and and I, I, like it's just like it's just like COVID. We're just moving slowly towards but that. But is it all coming from one or two giant companies or is it more informal? It seems like in China it's done through. Um, mega corps and then yeah like some informal networks but uh, I, that's just what they see they just see the future I mean and then they're ramping up drones they're ramping up automated driving services like we're just going to get closer and closer to a world where we don't think about who's bringing it from point A to point B but the distance between us and anything we want in a city is just shrinking um and that's cool, but also horrifying. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the type of person you are and what you enjoy. Yeah. Like for me, that's not cool, but that's always, that's like, I'm a broken record on that. Like, I don't want a drone delivering me shit. I just want, that's why I live in a city so I can go walk around and pick my own shit up. When I say, I think it's cool. I mean, the shortening, the distance between things is to me inherently cool, but it's tragic the way it's being played out, right? Like it's cool to be able to talk to someone on the other side of the world through Facebook, but then it's like, Oh, what else do you get for, from Facebook? Right. Anyway, um, delivery con uh, you know, uh, consolidation is just, it's going to happen. It seems like it'll just keep happening more and more and, and, and slowly we'll be just offered more and more things. What do you think restaurant, what are you hearing from restaurants in terms of these, titans right now any anything favorable i mean the the fact that there were many of them meant that none of them were making money right but there was competition so 
I guess the people who were, who were winning out were the customers, never the restaurants because the restaurants were still paying these absorbent fees. Right. But we were the ones that never had to pay for delivery. So I could see a world if there is just one or two options, if there are just one or two options, maybe they would start charging for delivery. But I don't know if we'll get to that place because they got everyone hooked on this idea of free delivery whenever you want it. Well, yeah. I mean, it's varying levels of free, right? Like you still have a little bit of a service fee. I mean, the the general, I feel like the general way they eat, that these companies eat, is there's a 30% margin on either end from the customer and the restaurant side, and they just kind of shift around deciding who they're taking money from. Mm-hmm. And the more power they have, the the greater they can increase that margin. We should talk maybe about the fact that, I mean, we've talked about it before, but various cities and states um, are... Some of them are city, but yeah, city and states are putting caps on how much delivery companies can charge restaurants and small business owners. Notably, Uber Eats just dropped their uh, extraneous fees for people that don't use their delivery system. So all these companies were charging whether you charging the restaurant, whether they were doing delivery or take out, pick up, take out, or even doing their own delivery. Like I'm a restaurant, I provide my own drivers, but I'm using Uber Eats as my platform. I would still get charged. Um, now those people do not have to pay the 30% fee. Are you pro these caps, these, uh, cities and States putting in these? Yeah, I'm pro the caps. The hope, the hope obviously is that good minimum wage laws can protect delivery workers and then the fees won't eat into them. Yeah. I think also the argument against the caps, which I also don't buy is from the capitalist point of view, which is like, why are you inserting yourself into markets government? Anyway, well, we will obviously keep track of this because, uh, we have no choice. (laughs) Um, we're wrapping up, uh, for this week. We'll be back next week with more stories, uh, more interesting information from the world of food. And uh, and maybe maybe some silly stories. Maybe some silly stories, although maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> we won't promise you guys anything, but we'll be back next week. Uh, okay. Thank you so much for listening. Okay, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye.